Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Now, today on The Energy Gang, we're going to be talking about what to expect from the COP28 climate conference in Dubai. The talks were opened this week by Simon Steele, who's the UN's Executive Director for Climate, and he was talking about how the whole world is watching what's going on there. And he quoted Yoda. He said, do or do not do, there is no try. To explain why the world is watching COP28, what it's all about, I'm joined today by Melissa Lott, who is the Research Director at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy. And also, you have a new job out here, Melissa. You've just been appointed a professor at Columbia's Climate School. That is true. Uh, that news rolled out this week, uh, right as we are recording today. So, Yeah, many congratulations. That's really fantastic. And what does it mean? What are you going to be doing then? Yeah, so what it means in, in large part, you know, as I work here at Columbia with the incredible team of scholars that I work with at the center and then also the faculty across campus, a lot of the work at the climate school is like about building bridges between the different departments that used to be siloed but need to not be siloed if we're going to make progress on mitigation and adaptation. So bringing the engineers and the finance and everyone into the same same room um, from across campus. So I'll be continuing that work and I will be continuing to teach um, our students and our next generation of leaders, you know, about climate energy transition pathways, where emissions come from, what tools we have to reduce them, all of those different things. So, Fantastic. Sounds very exciting. Um, we're also joined today by Amy Myers-Jaffe, who is the Director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Amy, how are you? I'm great, Ed. Had a big, big, big Thanksgiving. Lots of food, lots of food. And now I'm on a diet again, uh, but looking forward to joining you today on the show. Indeed. Any arguments about energy? Yes, we had intensive arguments about energy, um, uh, just like other families that are all, everybody's in energy. Excellent. And a lot of disagreement. And my husband, you know, who weighed in on the whole future of electric cars, always weighs in, even though he's not an energy expert. So uh, we were elaborating. Very good. Uh, methane leakage was a hot topic. <laughs> Oh, man. At Thanksgiving, just saying. So um, Fantastic. And that is definitely one of the subjects we're going to get into later in the show. So I'm sure we can hear more about it later on. I got to say one thing, Amy. I thought of you on Thanksgiving Day because we got into a whole discussion about AI and its impact and like the, oh, right. the whole digital transformation, like what actually might be possible in the near term, where we can optimize, where we can't. And I was like, oh, I wish I had a copy of your book with me. I did not drive with a copy this time. <laughs> um, I was reading it on one of my previous road trips, um, but I, I wish you'd been there, at least been able to kind of, you know, zone in for 20 minutes because it was, it was a fascinating oh, you're one. You're stealing my free electron oh, because no. we watched the new Mission Impossible movie, uh, you know, on TV streaming and uh, we all hated it. Oh no. And, <laughs> and part of the reason we hated it was that AI is very involved in this new storyline. And we felt oh that if you're going to make AI involved, like you shouldn't be doing karate chase scenes and fights <laughs> with a pipe because you could absolutely kill someone using AI. So what the hell are you using a pipe and karate? <laughs> This is nerdy awesome. I'm, it I'm really is. It really this. is. But now I feel like we should move past Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving <laughs> is over. It is behind us. And I'm really excited to start talking about what's happening this week and next week and the week after, in fact, which is COP28. 
in particular because it's a really exciting moment for us as the energy gang because we're going to be there at COP28 in Dubai for the first time. This podcast is going to be doing regular appearances. We'll be at the talks all of next week and following them through to the end. And we'll bring you all the latest developments explaining what they mean, why they matter in a series of episodes coming from COP28 in Dubai. So look out for those podcasts on the regular feed starting as of next week. Melissa, I'm very pleased to say you're going to be there with us in Dubai. Amy, shame you aren't, but maybe another time we can get you there. I don't usually go. I've only ever been once in my life before. I went, in fact, all the way back in 2009. I went to COP15 in Copenhagen. What I ended up thinking when I was there is I ended up being kind of inspired, but although I'm that, that COP, COP15 was not considered by any means a success. It, was, it wasn't a very successful COP. No, no, indeed. No, no. And it was kind of crazy. The negotiation was still going on as they were de-rigging the COP and moving in the shop fittings and everything for a bridal wear exhibition, which was the thing that was going to take place after the COP at the, that big conference center in Copenhagen. So as I say, though, I ended up being and something which I feel still to this day, really impressed that the world has made any progress at all on climate change, to be honest. But given that huge diversity of the world, given how people are pulling in so many different directions and are pulled themselves in so many different directions, the fact that we have been able to agree on the things we have been able to agree on, and in particular, that the world was able to agree on the Paris Agreement and to set those goals for limiting global warming, to well below two degrees or ideally to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The fact that anything has happened at all is tremendously impressive, I think. And I think anything that we say when we talk about climate policy and what the world is doing to tackle climate change, it's very important always to bear that in mind that when you just look at a COP, you might think nothing's ever going to happen here. And the fact that things have happened is tremendous testament to the efforts and the goodwill of thousands and thousands of people working together to try to tackle this global problem. So, Ed, you know, I, I want to make a point on that, and, and it goes to this particular COP, because it's very impressive. And one of the things I think you'll get a lot out of, and I'm so glad the show will be filmed from there, is that there's always a, a general sense a sense of pessimism, a sense of optimism, a f- certain focus that goes into these meetings. But the lead up to these meetings, some things get really thrashed out at the last minute, um, especially when you're trying to make a communique and have final directives. But a lot of work goes into, diplomatic work goes into the lead up to these negotiations. And the fact that we have two wars going on in the world that are taking up a tremendous amount of diplomatic effort of the part of major centers. So U.S. and Europe, the Ukraine war, and uh, U.S., Middle East, over the Israeli-Hamas conflict. So much energy is having to go to those two conflicts. And I can tell you, people only have so much bandwidth. And so luckily, the U.S. and China had been making some steady progress on what they were going to try to commit to, and it takes a long time to do these kind of arrangements. And so we could formally make some agreements that could be announced when President Biden met with the presidency in California at the APEC meeting. But there's so much attention to different kinds of problems in the world beyond just the climate problem 
that I think it was harder. So in that respect, the fact that there is this push to try to get a commitment to a renewable, global renewable energy target, um, or to even get the Chinese to add methane to their climate policy and, and get that announcement in the context, you know, I didn't even mention the fact that, you know, the United States and China have been navigating these conflicts between China and the Philippines over South China Sea Passage. I mean, there's just so much going on. One really needs to underscore how difficult it is to put everybody in the same place and have everybody just talk about climate change. Yeah. And I think it's a good point to add, like when we look at all the different pulls on our financial systems and where money goes, um, whether it's in response to an extreme climate event or in response to a humanitarian crisis surrounding a war, um, I certainly think you would find very few people who would be in a, in a place where they wouldn't say that not having wars in the world would be a very, very good thing. Uh, one of the reasons is it frees up resources to do other things that we want to do to improve our lives, as opposed to just trying to keep seriously basic services in place. Within all this, I wish there were no conflicts going on that created these huge crises, 100%. I think we're all on the same page with that. I think that these practical conversations about what we do in a world where we have a lot of different things going on is a really important one. And the fact that we don't um, stop these conversations from happening in the midst of these crises is important. 100%. I agree with you, 200%. So let's talk about some of those practicalities then. And you know, when we come to look back on COP28 in a couple of weeks' time, what will we be looking at to judge whether or not the conference was a success? I think as I've been reading about what's on the agenda and talking to people about what they expect to come up, it seems broadly speaking like there are four kind of areas of things that um, are going to be worth watching. One, the global stock take. So that's the kind of the review of everything that's happened since Paris. Two is this idea for a pledge on renewable energy and this proposal that the world should commit to tripling renewable energy generation capacity by 2030. Three is something on methane and cutting methane emissions from the economy in general, but very specifically from the oil and gas industry. And four would be climate finance and discussions about money flowing from rich countries to poorer countries to pay for many things associated with climate, to pay for emissions reductions, to pay for adaptation to the impacts of climate change in the future, and to pay for loss and damage that's being caused by climate change right now. They seem like the, as I say, the four kind of big baskets of uh, activity where you're going to be wanting to see some real progress while we're at COP28. Have, we, have I missed anything out? Does that sound about right to you? So I think that, you know, the supervisory body of Article 6.4 uh, says that they're going to come forward with recommendations. And and 6.4 in particular, as you say, that's the very specific part of the Paris Agreement that's currently under negotiation and still and has still not yet been finalized. That ties in in my world, I think, in my mind to the climate finance puzzle, um, because if their recommendations are sound and we could get a system where we could start to build back the offsets market, um, that's really cratered the, this past year as a tool, then I think that would be a very important event and people could have confidence in that market again. And it could be a, a, a very effective way for countries to raise capital to do natural solutions and other kinds of solutions. Come back to that in a moment because I, I want to talk about climate finance in general perhaps a bit later on in the show. But for now, just let's just go through maybe 
those things that I've been talking about. So, I mean, starting off with what seems like the sort of the first thing, which is the global stock take. So that is this exercise of saying, look at the world, look at how we've done since Paris in terms of commitments to curb emissions. There's thousands of words being written on this and published already. There's going to be more debate about it at COP28. I was looking at one of the technical papers published back in September, seemed to sum it all up pretty uh, concisely and just got the quote here, which is, Global emissions are not in line with modelled global mitigation pathways consistent with the temperature goal of the Paris Agreement, and there is a rapidly narrowing window to raise ambition and implement existing commitments in order to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And that same point broadly has been made uh, by a few different people at the UN and many other people more broadly. There's quite a vivid version from Simon Steele, who's the Executive Secretary of UN Climate Change, who said couple of weeks ago that governments had so far only taken baby steps to address climate change. What do you think then, I mean, given, as I say, that this in a way is kind of telling us what we knew already, that we're not on course 1.5 degrees, do you think this global stocktake is a valuable exercise? Melissa, what do you think is the the purpose of this and, and what do you think it's really telling us? I mean, the global stock take, uh, to quote some of my British friends from when I lived in the UK, so Ed, you can tell me if I get the, the quote right, but it's uh, it's what it says on the tin. It's uh, let's stop and take stock of what's going on and then be real with ourselves on if what's going on is enough for us to achieve this goal we've set out. And if it's not, then it's by the numbers, like we're not there yet. So then the response is, what does increasing ambition look like? How do we actually get ourselves as a world onto the path? I think it's very good that we have that moment to take stock of what's going on, to actually run those numbers, to do that on a routine basis, to know it's coming and to put pressure on ourselves to do better if we are trying to get to 1.5 or as close to it as we can get, well below two, you know, anything lower than today, like having the numbers is really, really valuable and helps us to benchmark what are we doing and is it good enough or do we need to up our game? So far, the numbers tell us we need to up our game more. What do you all think about it? So uh, Jeff Tolfson of, of Nature wrote an interesting article on specifically on this topic. He put in his perspective uh, of the science saying that we actually need to be reducing emissions by 8% a year uh, out to 2034 to give us a 50% chance of holding to one and a half degrees. I mean, that is a big number. It, I mean, we're doing well in the United States. Our emissions are down uh, significantly. But, you know, one of the things that was a critique with the Chinese announcements was that China's emissions, you know, haven't peaked yet. And they're talking about they're going to peak, but we're not talking about peak. We're talking about needing them to go down. And and that, I think, is really the, the devil in the details here, because you can point to things that are great. You know, we have a new election in Brazil and and deforestation is way down uh, in Brazil, right? So you can point to governments taking pretty aggressive actions. You know, there are countries, a lot of different countries in the global South are absolutely seriously going to put in a carbon price, which the United States should take heed that, you know, we're behind the eight ball compared to uh, some, you know, major economies in the developing world. But that's a big number to have to go down 8% a year. And just by means of comparison, we only went down that amount during COVID. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's it's absolutely staggering that you think we have to have basically a COVID scale reduction over and over and over again to get onto that 
pathway. And that's what the numbers say. Just during COVID, right, Amy, we looked at those numbers and went, that's the degree of change we're talking about. And granted, we can not just do that with behavior change, which is what COVID was about, but we can do it with massive infrastructure change. And those are big step function changes in emissions. So there is a difference there. But I mean, that's the degree of ambition we're talking about. Yeah. And actually, just to reiterate, that article in Nature by Jeff Tollefson is really fantastic. We'd urge everybody to read it if you haven't seen it already. Really interesting. and has some great graphics as well going with it, just kind of vividly illustrating the challenge of getting onto that 1.5 degree pathway. The thing also, I thought was really interesting about that article was that he comes to the conclusion that carbon dioxide removal is essential, but that's realistically the only way we're going to get to a 1.5 degree pathway is through very, very large scale carbon dioxide removal. I'm absolutely prepared to believe that you can take a big chunk out of energy consumption, you can increase energy efficiency greatly, and you can reduce emissions by a lot that way. Even assuming big gains through those kind of technologies, still seems to me like there has to be a very significant role for carbon dioxide removal. I don't know what you two think, because I'm... No, listen, all the models, all the models say that. There's no question. All the models say that. But, you know, is that a shortcut for saying we can't get there? Because in the end, direct air capture, you know, go back and listen to our episode with Emily Grubert, who's like the greatest thing since sliced bread. She's fantastic. Like, <laughs> like she's fantastic. <laughs> My basic take on mitigative CCS, so carbon capture and storage that you're doing to mitigate emissions rather than capture them from the atmosphere and permanently sequester them, resulting in removal, is that it's something that we should be looking at very carefully for places where there's not really other options for mitigation, but probably it's not the winner in places where you have other options. Okay. I mean, I mean that is an experimental technology. It is an experimental technology and it's going to be years before we can actually deploy it at scale. So, you know, that's why at the top of the hour, you know, I keep harping on this offsets, getting this offsets thing right, because we have got to stop destroying carbon sinks and we have to add carbon sinks. And, and you know, people say we can only get there so far. And, you know, when we had the episode that is now the most, probably our most controversial episode, you know, there's this question about whether carbon sequestration is enough because that's just sequestering our, our future carbon. It doesn't take carbon out, right? And we need negative emissions, right? So how are we going to do that? Well, there are also technologies for sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, of course. It's insanely expensive at the moment, but the costs have been coming down. People that are working on those technologies are projecting forward cost reductions that would make it actually pretty competitive when you compare direct air capture to other technologies for reducing carbon dioxide emissions. If you think what's happened to, let's say, the cost of wind power or solar power and how much those have dropped or battery storage, if we could bring down the cost of direct air capture the same way that we brought down all those kind of costs then actually I really think it could be a viable, viable option. And it's maybe it's the Hail Mary and it's the thing you don't want to have to rely on. And I thought it was very interesting. I don't know if you saw, but there were some comments from the International Energy Agency the other day where basically they were saying we shouldn't rely on carbon capture to save us. We shouldn't assume that it's going to be something which is available at large scale. There has to be a transformation of the energy system to reduce emissions we can't just rely on admissions being captured, but even so. Hey, Ed, I like the way Emily explained it. She said, imagine that you're making yourself a batch of Kool-Aid punch 
and you pour the powder in the water and stir it up really good so it's all dissolved. And then someone tells you, hey, by the way, bring me a machine that'll take that back, those powder particles back out of the liquid and remove them and get me back to water. That is what you're talking about. I mean, you're talking about just a massive undertaking. And it's, you know what it is? It's like a fantasy because the idea of transforming the energy system seems so overwhelming that it just seems easier to just build some giant thing and fan that carbon out of the air. Agreed, agreed. And and maybe it is, but I'm that's still an issue which it's one of these sort of issues where it's Scylla and Charybdis, right? As they say in Greek mythology, <laughs> there are two things that are really, really difficult and challenging to do. I, you know, I, I, I have to tell you, I do not think it would be hard because we're already going to all this AI and the 5G towers and the red light cameras and everything. How hard would it be to just tell people, you know what, every car in the city that's going to take you around personally is going to be connected into this system and it's going to pick you up and drop you off and it's going to be electric and we're going to generate that electricity, you know, in a decarbonized way. You could do it. I mean, it's so doable, right? To me, that is so much more doable to have a whole system of transportation that runs around robotics. That seems so much more doable to me than, like I said, grabbing these little particles out of the air and separating them from all the other little particles in the air. I mean, I will just I will just say on this whole discussion, though, like the reality is we're going to need all these things. It's not one or the other, right? And we know this when it looks at the modeling. And how do we hedge against risk? By having a lot of different baskets with eggs, however that saying goes, right? You just want to have a lot of different options. So if one basket gets dropped, those eggs break, but you still got other baskets with other eggs. And when we look at, and this goes back to individual cost of technology versus the total cost of decarbonizing a system down to net zero, because that's what we're talking about. Not 80% of the way there, half the way there, all the way to net zero. Like, what does it take? And it takes a mix of these things. And this is why... This discussion is part of why in my class on mitigation and on the podcasts that I do here at Columbia, and we've even talked about it, y'all, where I break down decarbonization, what I talk about a soccer team, where you got different types of players, but you want all these different types of players on the field playing together. Your goalie is these carbon management things, probably including direct air capture. So to Amy's points, we want to electrify a lot of things. We want to make it as efficient as possible while getting everyone hooked up to electricity. Like that's step one. We're also going to need to do a lot more than that. And so what we can't clean up, we're going to need to clean up a different way. I think there's going to be a role for things like direct air capture. But it's not going to be, and no one believes it's going to be the Hail Mary that covers every single problem in the book. It's just going to be part of that. Yeah. So let's bring it back to COP28 then and another part of that decarbonization picture. And as you say, another one of those baskets that people are putting their eggs into, which is this idea for... Um, a commitment tripling renewable energy power generation capacity by 2030, which is something that it looks like has got quite a lot of support. The EU supports it, the hosts, the UAE support it. I think we heard President Joe Biden and President Xi Jinping say that they supported it when they had their meeting uh, in California earlier this month. What do you think about that? Is that a sensible thing for the world to set as a goal, Melissa? I think that when it comes to renewables and clean power technologies and clean energy technologies, we need 
increased ambition. We need to speed up and we need to build a lot of stuff. And so if this goal can help then countries to set policies in place that allow building more renewables into the system and replacing carbon intensive parts of the system more quickly, then that's great. Um, there is the debate is, is tripling the right number? Is it more? Is it less? It's got to be increased ambition. Um, and it's got to be increased ambition compared to what we would expect to see without these types of statements. Well, it does certainly seem to be that. Yes, I was just looking at our forecast at Wood Mackenzie for what we expect renewable generation capacity to be in 2030. And if this is in our base case forecast, so this is, if you like, what we expect is most likely to happen. And the number we've got there is 6,600 gigawatts of renewable generation capacity worldwide in 2030. The number that the International Renewable Energy Agency and others say is implied by that tripling of generation capacity is 11,000 gigawatts of generation capacity worldwide. So that's more than 65% more than what we have in our forecast, what we think is most likely to happen. So that definitely looks like an ambitious goal. And actually, if you look at a scenario to put the world on course for net zero emissions around 2050, that's probably more like in that area of having about 11,000 gigawatts of renewable generation capacity in 2030. That's what you're going to need to get you onto that net zero pathway. So certainly ambitious. I guess my question is whether it's too ambitious. And if you think about what is actually achievable and what the world can really manage to get to in terms of accelerating investment in renewable energy, is that tripling actually asking too much? I will just say, and then Amy, I'm really curious your thoughts on this, but within unlocking renewables, one thing that isn't that difficult is the fact that renewables make a lot of economic sense to increase. Not to make, you know, variable renewables, we're not talking about them being 100% of the energy mix. That's not what we're discussing, not today. But within all of this, deploying them, like in most cases, and all the cases I'm looking at, these are like non-technical barriers that are getting in the way. So we're not able to permanent, we're not able to decide it, we're not able to finance it, we're not able to connect it to a grid, dot, 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 dot. So while it is ambitious compared to where we might expect us to go today, this isn't about extraordinarily fast ramp up of an unproven technology. It's actually about resolving a lot of things in the system that, you know what, to get to net zero and keep cumulative emissions down, we need to get our brains around it. If that is the goal, we need to lean into you know figuring out solutions on those pathways. So it, it feels ambitious. It feels like a stress perhaps to some, but we know what the solutions are. We just have to decide what solutions we are prepared to adopt as countries, as regions, as communities, et cetera, which is a conversation, a conversation that needs to happen. But Amy, I'm really curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going to weigh in because uh, one of my fantastic graduate students, uh, who's at the Climate Policy Lab at the Fletcher School at Tufts, just did a whole workup of uh, on China, and I think the numbers are very instructive. So they're at their highest installation for solar was in 2022. That was 87 gigawatts. Uh, and he says to get to their own carbon neutrality target, they need to do 117 uh, gigawatts a year, which he says is highly doable for them. When their highest year was 71.6 gigawatts uh, in 2020, uh, they only actually need to hit 60, 65 gigawatts a year. So that's totally easy to do. So they're believing that the renewables pathway for China, for example, is highly realistic. The problem is really not that. The problem is 
that when Biden and others have met with China, they couldn't get the Chinese to make a commitment to the words phasing out coal. And I think that the rub, again, my student did this uh, calculation, China needs to retire three times the current retirement rate for coal plants that are shutting down today in China. And then, you know, remember, China is still adding coal plants. And the thing that's crazy about it, but some of that's locational, is that there is actually overcapacity for coal in China. And the Chinese are paying a, um, a capacity payment to these underutilized coal plants, right? To keep them, uh, to have them avoid losses because their utilization rates are going to be so low. And why are they doing that? Because if there's a drought or they have some other situation like they had in the past couple of years, they want those plants there as backup. And this whole question about each country's way of achieving quote unquote backup, I think is a pivotal problem. And, and, you know, if we all trusted each other and we weren't in this world where we're all at war, you know, the absolute easiest way to fix that is to trade electricity across borders and across regions. The problem is say, take Europe where they're trying to add the Baltics into the grid in Europe. Uh, so they won't be vulnerable to coercion from the Russian grid. Uh, you know, the problem is in a conflict situation, you have to worry about all the geopolitical elements to trading across a border. And would somebody cut off an undersea cable or would you have some kind of a cyber attack that would harm the entire network? So it's really a big challenge to come up with how we're going to manage this renewable energy across regions and know that in times of an emergency, like a heat wave or whatever, uh, that we're going to be able to have all those systems be resilient. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's also very important to be realistic about that fact and to accept that we are where we are and those barriers and threats do exist. And we have to build an energy system around those obstacles and build one that's resistant to those potential risks. The thing, I mean, I think when I hear um, people from China talk about their position on this, on the coal shutdown in particular, it seems highly reasonable to me. They use the analogy, they say, if you're building a new house and you want to move into that house, you want to make sure that house is finished before you knock down your old house. But they're building new wings too. To be the problem is that they're building new wings in addition to building the renewables out. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. But certainly, if you think about some of the problems that Europe's got into, Germany, let's say, has been the classic example of that. If you've been shutting down nuclear power plants, if you've been shutting down coal-fired power plants, and then you get hit by a shock that was completely unexpected in terms of disruption to their natural gas supplies, and they end up having to turn coal plants back on again and run coal burn and coal production, that's been a terrible problem for Germany, has caused great hardship because of high energy prices, caused a massive hit to the economy and so on, has certainly put back the progress of the energy transition in Germany. So you can see why other countries, when they look at that experience, are kind of reluctant and they want to be sure that the energy system they are evolving towards as a lower carbon energy system with much higher reliance on renewables actually works and can provide them with the power they want reliably before they shut down all of the coal plants. And I don't think that's unreasonable. Well, it might not be unreasonable, but then we're not going to get to the target. And well, so we have to be thinking true. about, you know, 
what works? I mean, in Australia, you know, they had brownouts all the time and they put in a very flexible, interesting, you know, battery system. That's not just, I stuck a bunch of batteries out in the middle of nowhere, you know, just these in-home batteries, which actually helped in Germany as well. Right. So again, you know, my whole digital obsession, it's like, you know, what could I actually do? How many people, I mean, maybe this is a very first world thing, because of course in, in, in the developing world, you have places where they don't have any access to energy whatsoever, but you know, how much energy is really wasted because we don't have systems that automate turning it off and on. Um, we don't have systems that automate when we charge and when we don't charge things. Right. So I, I just think that, you know, even the people who've looked at this system in China, what they're really saying is the Chinese haven't studied how to make a flexible system. And I think that's a problem a lot of places. In the United States, you know, California is actually doing a little bit better with that. But, you know, who's in charge of making that system? You know, like if we, the modelers, could go out and say, here, here's what to build, like maybe we come up with a system that works best. But, you know, we have all these problems, you know, energy pricing, we're not, at, we're not pricing these assets in the way that we would that would make them deploy and work better. So there's just so many things that have to be deployed. Um, but but I, I'll tell you my position on target numbers. If I don't have a target number, then I won't do it. So I have to have a target number and it has to be unbelievably ambitious because otherwise I'm not even going to try. And it gets back to what you and Melissa were saying about why is it important to have a cop? You know, what, what is, what do you experience when you go to a cop? What you're really saying is we're trying to get everyone in the world to agree to the same thing. Like I, you know, besides the, this renewable energy target, which seems appealing because most countries are willing to add renewable energy. A lot of countries are saying that they could add jobs and provide services to people who are live in rural areas where solar might be the only option or small scale hydro might be the only option. So, but I, I think, and, and, and let me make my point, which I make over and over again, Africa is delivering energy to people who are non-electrified in the past with hydro. Okay. That is just a reality. But going forward, there's also this question about the systems in place. You know, the thing that makes me more optimistic is that more and more countries are thinking about using a carbon price or some kind of carbon tax uh, and that's a critical part of leveling the playing field. Okay, so let's move on to talk about another ambitious target that's going to be talked about at COP28, which is the Global Methane Pledge and this uh, commitment that ultimately I think 150 countries signed up to, which was first agreed at COP26 in Glasgow a couple of years ago, um, this goal of cutting their methane emissions by 30% from 2020 levels by 2030. It's not entirely clear what more progress we're going to get on that at COP28, but it's clearly going to be a big focus. It's a big priority in particular for the host of the COP, the UAE, because the UAE is a large producer of oil and gas, and it has a strong interest in finding ways to cut emissions as much as possible while people continue to use oil and gas. And given that we clearly are going to have continuing demand for oil and gas for a long time to come, it certainly does seem to make sense to reduce the emissions profile of that oil and gas as much as we can in the short term. Amy, what do you think about this? Do you think it's really possible to make significant progress on reducing emissions of methane beyond what was already agreed at COP26? I think that 
This is the laggard issue. This is the easy, low-hanging fruit. And what we've got is just an unwillingness to do it. We know how to do it. It's not expensive. For the oil and gas sector, 100% the technologies exist. People know how to do it. In China, for example, it turns out they're one of the world's biggest emitters of methane, and they have, they have methane coming out of their coal mines, so they've agreed to do uh, new accounting and reporting systems. Um, and they say they're going to be able to use 6 billion cubic meters of methane gas from their coal mines and, and close that down. But they haven't made a target. The United States is doing a lot of blah, blah, blah about methane emissions, but we are not forcing the companies to close it down, the methane emissions in the Permian and other major areas. You know, this is something where it can be done, it can be done easily, and we're just giving everybody a free pass when we know how deleterious it is to let methane go in the sky. And it's also, you know, landfill. Like, we need to stop landfill. I mean, there's just so many issues where we know what the solution is, we know how to do it, we have the technology, and we just refuse to do it. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, there's a paper that came out from the Center on Global Energy Policy, oh gosh, a few years ago now, where it's uh, the title of it is Nowhere to Hide um, and its implications of, in this case, we were talking about satellite space methane detection. But to Amy's point, we know what to do. We know how to do it. We know how to monitor it and actually figure out, though, we could go into the limitations of satellite in more detail in terms of can it catch all the real-time stuff or is it you know points in time? It's the latter. Um, but we, we know how to do this. This isn't, um, again, something we have to innovate radical things to be able to accomplish. So reducing these waste streams could get us a lot of the way down the road to where we want to go and buy us some time. And while we're on the subject of methane, Melissa, I don't know if you listened to the last episode of the Energy Gang, the what we call the family debate about energy. We always say that we value feedback. We had some strong feedback about that show, some positive, some strongly negative, I think. And I think uh, for people who didn't hear it, it was, as if we called it a family debate because we had two brothers, Toby and Danny Rice. And Toby is CEO of the largest natural gas producer in the US, EQT, and his brother, Danny, is CEO of a company called Net Power, which is aiming to generate electricity using natural gas, but capturing almost all the carbon dioxide emissions. And essentially, a lot of the debate was about the role of natural gas in the transition and whether uh, switching from coal to gas for power generation and other uses, heating, cooking, etc., whether that was actually going to be a net benefit in terms of emissions, because people said, well, given all the leakage that happens from natural gas through the value chain, probably when you compare the two, gas doesn't end up actually saving you a lot compared to coal. I feel felt that we did discuss that issue a bit, and I think there's certainly more that could be said about it, and I'm sure we will say more about it on future shows. But I don't know, what did you think of that episode? So I actually listened to it at 2x, uh, so you sounded like chipmunks, which is pretty amusing <laughs> around Thanksgiving as you're like starting to go in Alvin and the chipmunks mode, you know, in your your medleys on your playlists. Um, you know, so a couple different things. Like, I think that it's important that we have people who work in those deep areas and they go deep on one particular piece of it. And it's also important to make sure we pull those conversations up and you talk not just about kind of the tools in the toolbox that that particular group is working with a lot, but also talk about the context in which it is happening and also what the numbers say about what's possible, what's not, what has actually already happened according to the numbers and what hasn't. And so I do think, you know, 
chipmunk version of y'all um, <laughs> gave me, you know, some of the beginnings of that conversation, but I think it's one we need to go a lot deeper on as we need to go deeper on that conversation across a whole host of other technologies and doing it in a way that just acknowledges that every single one of these things has trade-offs and we can do it badly. We can do it less badly. We can do it well, you know, and, and what are the practical steps forward in terms of going for the doing it well part of the equation and minimizing the risks and maximizing the opportunities. Honestly, my last comment that I'll make is I just wish I could have been a fly on the wall for the conversation. I wish I'd, I wish I'd been there, especially for the outtakes afterwards, because I'm assuming that conversation went on for much longer than we will ever have room for in an Energy Gang episode. But y'all tell me if I'm wrong. I wasn't there. So, you know. So, so, so listen, listen, the thing is, I, I, I had someone from the clean tech world, you know, I said, what do you, what do you think of this episode? And they, I, I like their perspective. They said that people in the clean tech world never actually get to hear what people in the natural gas world tell each other when they're alone in a room together. Right. And I think it's important for people to hear what people are saying, especially if you disagree. There were things they were saying, you know, I don't want to go into my whole LCOE thing, but there are things that they said. Oh about, man, don't say LCOE, Amy, don't do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> there are things that they said about the inexpensiveness uh, of natural gas, which was just shocking because of course there's been many times where natural gas is not inexpensive. And if you look forward out to 2030 with the IRA program, natural gas with CCS is going to be much more expensive than renewables. So you know, there were, there were things to call out. And sometimes in your tape in a show, it's hard to call out everything. <laughs> but in the end, one thing they said that is definitely true, and that is that they will be a more scrutinized industry going forward. 100%. Much more scrutinized industry going forward. 100%. And that, that absolutely agree with that. And, and the writing's on the wall with that. Now, how quickly, how enforceably, they will be scrutinized, but you know, what will all the regulations be? What will the enforcement look like? That's still up in the air in a lot of cases. But I'll say this, where to your point, Amy, what we can often find ourselves in the middle of, and this is not for oil and gas companies, environmental NGOs, solar companies, academics, it's so easy for us to get into echo chambers. It is so easy for us to get into echo chambers. And that is not exclusive to any part of the energy transition, the energy system. It Honestly, it goes beyond energy, right? So, so many of these modeling exercises we do in energy, they make assumptions about population and technology penetration for things that are outside of energy. I mean, there's just all these, we create all these echo chambers. And to your point, it's important that we hear what conversations are going on in each of these pockets and you know across the entire value chain to understand where is the mindset and the mentality, where are the concerns. And I think about this not just in terms of energy supply or demand companies or transformation companies, transport companies, any of that. I think of it also in terms of communities, in terms of the local communities I engage with when they're talking about where their priorities are. And the reality is they're balancing a lot of different things and how that influences their energy decisions. And you might think that a barrier exists where it doesn't and vice versa, that it's going to be an easy road and it's not actually. And if we're only talking to people who say the exact same words as us, like we're not going to actually make the breakthroughs we need in terms of conversations. We have to lean into the really tough spots of the, the equation and we can't sit in our comfortable echo chambers. We got to constantly challenge ourselves and get out of them. Yeah, I 100% agree with all of that. And certainly this conversation has to continue and will continue on future episodes. I know that, for instance, we are um, talking about bringing on someone who's a very strong critic of the natural gas industry on a future show, which I think would be a great thing to do. And I'm very much looking forward to that as part of the conversation as well. And I think you've got to find that really interesting to talk to that person 
when we get that confirmed. I got to say, Ed, just on that, like getting people into a room and into a dialogue and conversation that's based on getting understanding where you have big critics, big supporters, you know, and, and have them talk it through. Like those are some fascinating conversations where we figure out how much our disagreements are on the margin issues versus core tenants of what we're looking at. Um, more often than I might've thought it's actually on the margins. It's not the core stuff, um, that we disagree on. We just have our kind of blinders on, um, again, when we end up in these echo chambers and we're not talking. So great to have a diversity of guests. It's also great when you get together and you hack out the tensions. Um, like you and me on if geothermal should be installed around Burning Man or not. Like it's good we talk about it. No joke. Like it's good we talk through it and see where we really disagree, which is actually not that much on the two of us. But we didn't know that before we started talking through it. Ed didn't like my solar road thing and I'm, I'm still going to hammer that. Oh my gosh. I love it. I love it. Anyway, finally, just to bring the conversation back around to COP28 again, there was one other thing I was keen to discuss, which is this question of climate finance. And Amy, as you were saying, the question of international carbon trading and offsets and the way those fit together. Climate finance is a subject we've talked about quite a bit on the show. Famously, the rich countries promised all the way back in 2009 to provide $100 billion every year in finance to poorer countries to pay for emissions reduction and adaptation to climate change. And then now, as of last year, there was a new fund launched. There was what's called the Loss and Damage Fund, which was agreed at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. And what that's meant to do is help countries affected by the impacts of climate change and to make up for the loss and damage that they're suffering. Great that that fund was agreed. The big problem with it is it's currently a fund without any funds in it at the moment. So, Amy, when you think about what we can expect there on COP28, we seem to have been in this period where um, the rich countries are just not very willing to provide a lot of finance to poorer countries related to climate change. And this obviously has caused a great deal of resentment among the poorer countries. Do you see real signs that that'll change at COP28? Are you hopeful there could be some real progress made here? So I think there's like three steps to consider. Last year, there's a lot of focus, not just in getting the loss and damage fund launched, but to really think through the fact that international institutions have to change their approach. So I am working with different groups and I'm seeing Asian Development Bank, Inter-American Development Bank, some of these big multilateral banks are really rethinking how to integrate climate change into how they do things. And so I do think we'll see progress in that regard. Uh, the World Bank's been a little slower to the table, but I do think that they understand what needs to be done, and they're trying to think about how to self-reform. So, but the numbers are staggering. We're spending $1.4 trillion a year, uh, public and private funds, on climate solutions. That includes adaptation and mitigation. Uh, but we need to spend something like 8 or $9 trillion a year um, to get where we need to go. And so this question of finance, when you think about interest rates and the rising indebtedness of countries in the global south and the difficulty they are having in servicing their debt, um, I think this is a key challenge. And that's why I come back to, you know, what's the role of carbon markets here in the United States? One of the things we've seen is that the Reggie system and the California system has been able to target a certain percentage of the money that comes from carbon 
allowance auctions to go to specifically to spend to help underserved communities and to address climate justice and environmental justice issues. So I think this is a global paradigm, right? That as we move to really trying to reform uh, the voluntary carbon markets, as we look to have more carbon markets in different locations, you know, how do we tap those markets to provide the finance for those who need it the most? Because my concern about the loss and damage fund, having studied the global climate adaptation fund and some of the other, you know, funds that were set up for a purpose is that there isn't a just and fair way this money gets allocated. The countries that need the money the most don't have the capacity to try to apply for that money. The green bond market is absolutely failing to deliver that money to the countries that need it most. So we really need a different way of doing it. And I really do believe that this offsets market, if it were properly constructed, uh, could be a great tool. And so the big issue that's been fought about uh, in this new you know, run-up to COP28 is how do we define permanence when we're talking about an offset? And if we don't, if you say something's going to be permanent and you have a scientific plan and then it turns out something happened, there's a fire or something else happens and, um, and, and, and you, you lose that uh, uh, promise, then there has to be, if there's going to be a risk of reversals, then there has to be stipulations and plans for remediation. So when I'm setting up my offset, you know, what is the plan for remediation? And, and that would go into the value that I would place on that offset. Uh, because there are some corporations that are doing creative and interesting things on preventing deforestation or uh, certifying, you know, chocolate cocoa or certifying coffee beans and things like that. Like it's possible to have the private sector bring more finance to agriculture, to forestry, um, to other kinds of investments, even renewable energy credits, you know, it's possible to get this going, but we really do need to have a global system that's accepted and a standard that is accepted and used. Yeah, so that's really fascinating. And that's something I have to say, I hadn't really kind of focused on particularly in the past, but that connection between capital flows and everything we talk about in terms of capital needing to flow to poorer countries to help with climate mitigation and adaptation, connection between that and carbon markets and the potential that carbon markets have to be a mechanism for directing capital to where it's most needed, as you say, in those poorer countries, in those poorer populations. That's a really significant factor and definitely something that's going to be very important to watch during COP28. So unfortunately, we do have to just about leave it there. We're just about out of time, but unfortunately, we do just about have to leave it there. We've just got time for our free electrons, uh, personal items that we've brought in. Melissa, what's yours? I got two. I'll keep them quick. Uh, one is just because COP is happening. Um, we put up a video just talking about what the Columbia University and the Center on Global Energy Policy is doing at COP. So it's on our website in case folks are wondering. I mean, I'm going to COP this year. It's my first time. Why? There's some big reasons for that. So you just might 
go on if you're interested. The second thing is I have learned a lot, and Amy, I'm curious if you have this too, about how a Tesla works when it's really cold outside and snowing on you, not too far from Albany, New York, um, and how much your like battery and your capacity actually drops. I'm so glad we got the extended range when you're operating with the heater blasting, going through some icier conditions. Like it's, um, it's interesting, and I feel like I can empathize with my Canadian colleagues a lot better than I could. Before I could sympathize, but now I've had experience experience where I'm like, I really got to go charge much more quickly by the numbers than I do when I'm kind of on a, on a nice mild day or even in the summertime. Cause I was used to Texas kind of blasting the AC during the summer weather and the winter is, is pretty rough on that battery in terms of the amount of miles I can travel before I got to be plugging in. So just a comment there. Um, I'm going down the rabbit hole and I'll have more numbers done as like a I don't know, a post-trip event from our latest road trip um, to go through, but we are seeing some huge drops in our effective capacity and our range um, because of the cold weather right now. Yeah, we'd be really interested to hear more of that. And in particular, then let's talk about your thoughts on whether that would put you off buying an EV again in the future, or if if it doesn't, you know, what kind of different EV you might want to buy, what else you might be looking for. Fascinating conversation. To it have. puts me in the place of wanting a big battery, Ed. That's the that's the bottom yeah. line. Like it's this whole, yeah, it'd be great to be efficient and have a smaller battery, uses less materials. But when I'm going to drive through cold weather for a few months of the year and I'm going to want to go on a couple of road trips because those cold months are also around holidays, um, you know, that's that's where it goes. So that's how my my decision matrix works. Um, but yes, we'll we'll discuss it in greater detail another week. But those are my two rabbit holes. Impacts of cold weather on batteries. Thanks. Amy, what's yours? So for my free electrons, since I've already done my complaint about the movie Mission Impossible... I do have a new study coming out. It's going to be posted at the NYU website where we have looked at, can electricity be used as a geopolitical weapon? Uh, it's my first in a series of articles on that topic. You know, for years, I was very well known for writing about the geopolitics first of oil and then the geopolitics of natural gas. And now I've moved on to the geopolitics of electricity trading. So uh, first glance, paper's coming out this week. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, that does sound fascinating. Thanks very much indeed. We'll definitely uh, take a look at that. As you say, the oil weapon is well known. The What do you, what do you call it? Do you call it the power weapon? The electricity weapon? What's the, needs a catchy phrase. I don't it? have a tag for it. We we talk, the, the, the term in, in the writing about its space is called electricity coercion. <laughs> That's That sounds Pretty scary. Yeah, I think that would make people sit up and take notice. Indeed, indeed. So my um, free electron is a bit like yours, Amy, in that it's something practical for the holiday season. So you've you've told me something useful, which is that I shouldn't bother watching the new Mission Impossible film. I have a Christmas gift idea for everybody. This is real kind of news you can use stuff, which is a board game. To be honest, I've not actually uh, bought it myself. I've just been reading about it, but it does sound really fantastic. It's a game called Daybreak, which is a board game, one of these um, collaborative, non-competitive board games where all the players try to work together to solve the problem of climate change. And it's apparently it's designed by the same guy that designed the game Pandemic. I don't know if you know that one, where, again, the players work together. It's a cooperative game where you work together to try and stop a global pandemic. And um, just sounds really interesting. I've read some reviews by people that have said it's a great game, very entertaining to play. I've heard some people kind of pick nits with some aspects of the science and the way the energy system is depicted and so on. But still, sounds like a lot of fun and the perfect present for 
any energy gang listener i'm sure out there will be and anyone who wants to get into those um conversations with their families about energy over the christmas season this sounds like an excellent thing to get so that is certainly uh as i say that's answered my all all my christmas present questions that's what all my family's going to get that now that could be a real paradigm shift for the jaffe family because we play the board game risk and there's always a conflict about because my oldest son always wins and now my daughter's married so we've added an extra player and we're we're all still trying to figure out how we can beat him sometimes we make coalitions it's very challenging and so i can't imagine us actually playing a cooperative board game uh but we could try we could try yeah risk is brutal isn't it so many family arguments we've had as a result of playing risk it's definitely not a way to kind of encourage family harmony and to get into that kind of festive spirit of everyone kind of putting aside all ill will and getting together so yeah i think it's a good idea i think you should do exactly this get the cooperative game work together tackle climate change that's a as you say a lovely paradigm shift there getting away from global conflict and towards global cooperation so that's my recommendation i like it it's in the spirit of the holidays exactly that exactly that so we do unfortunately have to leave it there uh, many thanks amy for joining us today thank you ed and many thanks to you melissa ed amy oh my gosh i cannot wait to do this again and we can talk all about cop and what we've seen this year and i just yeah i can't wait to continue the conversation it's great to see you both looking forward very much to seeing you next week and having those great conversations about COP28 and everything that's going on there. Many thanks to our producers, Sam Nash and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As I was saying earlier, we really do appreciate your feedback. Please do keep the comments coming. You can leave a review or you can contact us on social media. We're now on all the platforms, I think. The Energy Gang has just a few days ago opened its account on Blue Sky. So... If that's a platform you're on, you can find us there, but we're on all of the other ones as well. Hopefully, whichever one you use, the message will get through. And as I say, we'll be back next week when we begin our coverage of COP28. So do please listen in then. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.